0: Uh, so my name's Sean, I'm the lead pastor here. We're continuing our series through the, through the book of James, which we're calling An Identity of Grace. You're welcome to turn there in your own Bibles or in your smartphones or it's printed for you in the bulletin. We're gonna be in James chapter one, verses 12 through 25 this morning. And to kind of get us into the mindset of where James is gonna take us today, I want to remind you of a movie from the late 90s called The Dead Poets Society. Anybody remember this movie? It's a great movie. It's one a, a classic movie. I, I had the privilege of seeing this movie. You know, towards the uh, end of my high school career, maybe I can't remember, but I do remember this. I had a Greek professor in college at Baylor who was like this character that Robin Williams played. It was great. He literally had us rip out an essay at the very beginning of the of the school year and threw it away and. It was just wonderful to have a teacher who's like that. If you remember, Robin Williams plays this teacher who kind of opens up the world of poetry to a bunch of 1950s future businessmen. They're all a bunch of middle class, upper middle class rationalists who, who are Uh, uh, have money and they're put in this school to be trained for a career in business. And so he comes and he tries to teach them a way of looking at the world that includes some non-rational, not irrational, some non-rational elements. And it opens up the world to them. And anyway, it's a great story. I highly recommend it. And our passage today is in a very similar vein. James is going to try to open up to us some Not necessarily non-rational, but some ways that are a little outside the box of what we would normally think, but was right in line with where they were. So James, if you remember, James is about how Christianity fundamentally changes who you are. James wants us to see that the gospel is for life in this world. But often, we have to be weaned off of the way we are used to living The way that God does that, James tells us in the first 12 verses, is he does that through trials. He sends trials to make us better. God sends trials, James tells us, to build our steadfastness, to get us to turn to him in faith for the resources to do life, the resources he offers to us in the gospel because God has big plans for us in Jesus. What gets us to our theme for today, which is this, that made new in Jesus. The church is God's super spreader of life. And that is why James opens his book with the exhortation to see trials as joy because God is working in our life through those trials. And if we can't see that, he tells us to ask for wisdom. Such a view of trials, such a view of God's active sovereignty over our life raises some questions. And James now kind of addresses those questions here in the next part of chapter one. So if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word as we look at James chapter one, verses 13 through 25. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. know this my beloved brothers let every person be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of god therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word we thank you, Lord, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, that we might know you and know your truth and know your gospel, know how much you care for us and know the great resources you give us. So, Lord, we pray that once again, you would open this text up to us, that we would taste and see that you are good through this passage this morning. Open our eyes by your spirit that we might see Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So we're going to start right away. James kind of asks a question in verses 13 through 18. He asks, are we tempted or are we made new? He jumps right in with some legitimate questions here. Basically, the questions are, why is it so hard? God sends trials. Okay, I'm supposed to ask for wisdom, but why does he keep sending trials? Is God out to get me? Does he want me to sin? Does he want me to doubt? And so James says, no, God doesn't work that way. He's not the problem. We are. In verse 14, he starts out using a fishing metaphor to show us, the the, the picture is our own desires, our own lusts, those are a lure to entice us. Like a fisherman, those are the bait on the hook and once those desires hook us, says they give birth to sin, which then gives birth to death because of our broken, sinful desires. See, in the midst of trials, James says, no, don't look at these. Say, God is trying to tempt me. No, God doesn't tempt anyone. You are turning this into a temptation. It isn't balance that you need. It isn't mindfulness you need. We need change on the inside because we are the problem. The trial may be from God, James says, but the sin, that's all from us. That's what we bring to the table. So just as a quick practical application, this is why, by the way, in biblical Christianity, we don't do the whole veiling thing for women because the problem is not the female form, the problem is the human heart. That comes from us. That's what James is getting at here, inside of us. We are the problem. See, James says, don't be fooled into seeing trials as proof that God's out to get you, no. Those are a gift from God, he says in verse 17. And as such, they're good. You see boys and girls who are still here, but James does here. he's a real pastor. James is reminding us that anything that comes from God is good. Anything that comes from above is a good gift. Here's how we put it for you, boys and girls. I want to make sure you're paying attention here, too. The bottom of page 9, your verse 17, we said this God, who is unchangeably good, gives us good things. See, God gives us good things because He is good. Even if it's a hard thing, even if it's something that makes you sad, James says it's a good thing. God is working in your life through that. Boys and girls, would you like to know a secret? I'll tell you a secret. Mom and dad, they look back on some of the sad things in their life and they're actually glad they happened. They don't want to do them again, but they're glad they happened because God made them better through them. Ask them, they'll tell you. That's what James is saying here. See, James comes along here and in a radical challenge to our culture and to their culture, he says, look, don't look inside yourself. Look outside to the stable, unchanging Creator. Look to Him for peace, and He will change you on the inside. You don't need mindfulness. You don't need to get centered and just get really you resonate with your snow. You need to look outside yourself to something bigger and more stable. Here's how He put it for us in verse 18. So I'll look at verse 18 together. He says this He says, Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. See, whereas our desires brought forth sin and death, God's desires here brought us life in Jesus Christ. And James calls Jesus Christ here the word of truth. It's a weird phrase. We're gonna have to dig into that one just a little bit, okay? So James is a a real pastor, and he's dealing with real people who are going through real issues. And so He wants to use real language to help them understand what's going on here. So in order for us to get this, we've got to enter the world of the the first readers of James. I I want to take you through three quick words, okay? Stick with me here. This will be a little deep, but I'm sure we can get through it together. So I want to show you three quick Greek words here, okay? So we've got chaos, right? No one pronounces this chaos, right? It's chaos, and all the O's are the same, so it's chaos cosmos, and logos. Okay, now here's why I'm showing you this. These three words kinda were the fundamental portion of their worldview at the time. The whole Mediterranean basin, Roman, Greek, Jewish, Arabic, all together, this was kinda the background noise of their worldview. Basically, chaos, we know that one, right? That's complete disorder. It's not capable of sustaining life. Cosmos is everything in order, capable of sustaining life. Logos was kind of the organizing principle or the structure behind chaos. The key difference between a chaos and a cosmos is the logos. So we can put it this way, We're going to do some math, ready? Sorry, I'm gonna make you do math. You get chaos plus logos equals cosmos. Okay, I know, hold on, pay attention to me, okay? Sports, sports, okay, pay attention. All right, so. I have a, a quick quote for you. It's on the front of the bulletin. I want you to look at this real quick so we can get this. All right? That very first quote there. The Greeks believed, preparation for issue, the Greeks believed that the, na- that the universe had a rational and moral order to it. And this order of nature they called the logos. For the Greeks, the meaning of life was to contemplate and discern this Order in the world that they defined a well-lived life as one who conformed to it. Okay, this is what, what they really believed. So let me help you see this. So your car, your car is a cosmos. It's not a disorganized pile of metal, rubber, and plastic. That's a chaos. Because it has been affected by the organization, plan, structure, and actions of the factory. That would be the logos. So the logos comes to chaos and turns it into a cosmos. And here's why you should care about this. Here's why this is important. Because the word logos has been under translated for hundreds of years in the English world. It's the common word for word. Like here in verse 18, it says the word of truth. And the way we use word in church, it's gonna say it, it's meaningless Christianese. And if you're offended, I'm sorry, explain the word to an eight-year-old and I'll apologize. Explain the way we use the word, the, the word word in church to an eight-year-old, I can't. And we've robbed ourselves of the riches God intends when we do that. No ancient person would read Logos like in this text here and think word like we do. They would think that whole background structure and system, that whole concept of Logos was broadly understood, and here's what I mean. Not everybody could define it that way, but how many of you have used the phrase, the cloud? Raise your hand, raise your hand, okay? You can put your hands down. Of you who've raised your hands, do you know exactly how to code, connect, and maintain the thousands of servers across the thousands of warehouses on our planet today? But you use the word the cloud. You don't understand every intricate detail and you said I saved to the cloud? Right? So too, most people did not understand every intricate detail of this Logos concept, but they used the term because it was out there in the midst of the culture. Everybody else used it and they jumped in too. They just knew this term. So broadly understood when James comes in and he says God birthed us, in verse 18, God birthed us by the Logos of truth. It was a really big deal that they understood God birthed them as a new people through the fundamental truth of reality so they could be the specimens, the samples of a new creation he's bringing about. See, and according to John's Gospel, that fundamental truth of reality, that logos is a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. You can look with me on the front of your bulletin. I think we have it in a slide here. Very familiar verses, right? John 1, one through two, what does it actually say? In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. Isn't that much more profound than in the beginning was the word? What does that mean? See, to bring it all together, what James is saying is God is changing the world with the gospel and the radically transformed lives of Christians are the foretaste, the appetizer, the product sample of that great change that is coming one day, someday. The chaos of sin and death has been turned into a cosmos of grace by his logos of truth. That's the gospel. That's how they would have read verse 18. How huge is that? Right, that's so much bigger. I need Mike to help me with this part. Mike, could you come up here and help me with this part? So boys and girls, I know sometimes we try to teach you at VBS simple things. So there's a, this, there's a, and most of you kind of know this song. Pa, pa, I almost called you Pastor Mike. Mr. Mike's gonna lead us into a song. If, boys and girls, if you recognize it, I want you to sing along a little bit, Okay. Go ahead. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's right. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Right, stop. I know you want to go on. Stop. See, what James tells us is James tells us that we should rewrite it like this. God is changing everything. A new world through Christ he brings. He is making all things new. I'm the proof and so are you. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Thank you. See how bigger that is? Man, it's so nice to have somebody who can sing. You did not want me singing that. (laughs) Right, see James says that Christians, we exist in one sense to show the world the beauty of the gospel to show the world a whole new way to be human. Human. God has birthed this Logos as a person and that person has birthed himself in us. We are changing everything. The gospel is that world changing. We're the first fruits of it. The best of his transformation. So no, we're not tempted by God. We are made new with the gospels, with that grand huge opening that they would be like, whoa. He then jumps in in verses 19 through 21 and says, yeah, then that makes us clean, but we're still kind of angry. James has reminded them of the beauty of the gospel, how robust and life-changing it is, and that's why he starts verse 19. It's often translated as a command. It's probably translated that way in yours. It's actually not a command. It could could go both ways, and it seems to be more of a a statement. Not know this, but y'all know this. Kind of reminding them of something they already know he jumps right in basically to those of us who would consider ourselves theologically astute because here's where we get hung up. In spite of all this robust gospel, notice what he says. We are often very petty and very angry because people out there don't behave or vote the way we think they should. And so we, we become indignant at trivial things. Notice how he takes this text here, this beautiful grand gospel. He's like, man, why are y'all getting so angry so quickly? I mean, we do this, don't, don't we? I mean, you know, like right up here where Woolrich hits Midlothian Turnpike. You know, it's two, it's two lanes, and then it becomes three lanes, right? And that third lane starts right there, which means you have the right of way. Not Mid Low Turnpike. You don't have to stop. I mean, be safe and glance, but notice next time there's no yield sign, there's no stop, because you have the right of way. And yet, everybody and their dog and the police officer in front of me last night stops there. I'm like, <laughs> I am a sample of the new life that the Lagos is bringing, and I get riled up about that. What is wrong with me? How pathetic. And it gets even worse for me in verse 20. Look at verse 20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Think about the comments we make on social media when someone dares to post something we disagree with. Well, someone's wrong on the internet. I mean, does our anger or sarcasm ever work? It doesn't. See, conservative, religious-minded people like me we need to be reminded of that because we get so angry at unrighteousness in public. And that anger doesn't bring about a culture of righteousness. Our anger at the sin of others neither impresses God nor impresses upon them the beauty of God and their need for change based in his love. Cuz it's his love that empowers change. He has the resources to bring change. Our anger does not have the resources. Our anger does not bring about the righteousness of God. Here's how we put this for the boys and girls. Make sure we all get this. Look, let's, look, let's look at their verse 19 and 20 together. It says this. It says, so we should all listen more than we talk and not be quickly angry since our anger does not make the world better. See, James confronts us. We've been made clean in Jesus, but we get so angry so quickly at the un cleanliness of others that actually what happens according to verse 21 is we get dirty all over again and he says we got to get rid of all that filth and stuff now so he tells us cast off your our filthy anger and he says receive what does he say receive receive the implanted word there it is again what does that mean word receive the implant no remember word is meaningless christianese this is our friend logos so the short version, Logos is the way the world should be. Cosmos is the way it is and he says receive all that stuff. I've given you all the resources in Jesus to be an agent of the world that should be. Receive that implanted truth, that implanted Logos. We could translate verse 21 as having cast off all the junk and humility, take up the Logos God has birthed into you. See, it's not our anger, it's not our temper tantrums that the world needs. Instead, the world should see in us this world-changing person, changing gospel. This connection to reality that we have, that they need. That's the biblical gospel, what he calls the logos of truth that God has birthed into us. Oh, it's huge. It's so much bigger than we think it is. So how are we to live out this reality that God has put into us? Well, Remember, last week we said that James must be from Missouri because it's the show me epistle. And so he's going to show us in verses 22 through 25 where he says we're poets. We're not auditors. James here in these verses gives us one of the most profound images in the Bible. But it's so familiar that we often miss it. Um, I just want to caveat this up front. I will try to slow down and I will try not to overwhelm you, but in a previous life, I was going to get a PhD and and one of the passages it was going to focus on was right here in James. So I'll try not to have you drink from a fire hose, but those of you in the front couple rows, you you might get wet. Um, So verse 22, he tells us, be doers of the word, which we assume means kind of, you know, um, obey the commands. But it's so much richer than that. So in the ancient world, Those who created art, those who created literature, they were seen to be tapping into the divine. They were connecting their hearers to a non-rational, unseen, but very real reality. These creative types were called poets. And by the time of the New Testament, that word for poet meant creator. It meant Author, it still meant poet, and it was occasionally used for the, as the word for doer. So literally, now we see the slide, what James tells us here literally in the Greek is be poets of the logos. See now you know why I spent so much time on logos earlier. We are poets of this unseen ultimate reality, the very basic structure that makes life possible in the universe that John 1 says is embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called to be poets. We're called to be those who are connections to the way the world should be. We do life differently. We are Jesus' poets showing the beauty he wants us to produce in people. I want to give you a, 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 a glimpse of what this is like. So no, I want to do another movie. This movie came out in the late 90s. It's called the movie Contact. Jodie Foster Matthew McConaughey. And this movie, I'm not going to get through the whole plot, but basically through radio transmissions, humanity is uh, somehow brought into this transport system that's in the universe. And all they got to do is build this device, and it will jump them into this wormhole thing. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. It's, so Jodie Foster wins a contest to be the person who gets to ride in the first like, little thing that they're gonna shoot through, through this. And the very first like, transit stop she makes, she sees a planet and it's inhabited and it's beautiful and as she's going through, she sees all these colors and she's, she's describing everything she sees to record her. And at one point, an ultimate frustration she goes, they should have sent a poet. Because it's so beautiful, it's so amazing that she doesn't have the categories as a brilliant scientist to capture this. She needs something else. And when it comes to the wonders offered to the world in the gospel, God did send poets, James tells us. It's us, we're the poets of the Logos commissioned by him to be those who take this beauty to a ugly, ugly world. Not getting angry at the ugliness in the world, but speaking the truth that's in us and making the ugly world beautiful with the logos of truth that's been put in us because we're poets of that logos. And to make sure we don't miss how profound of a calling it is, he gives the negative image also. He says, be this, but he says, don't be hearers only. I remember my last semester in seminary, I had some extra hours to get in, and, and so I, I, I was going to take this cultural apologetics class. It was it was taught by a brand new professor who was younger, and he was he was really like challenging, and we all really liked him a lot. And so the cultural apologetics class, the idea was that we were going to read all this junk in advance, and then we were going to actually meet at different places in the community and have like public debates and conversations, and invite people to participate. What a cool idea, right? So it comes time for the class, and only like five of us signed up as Students and then he had twenty people signed up as auditors and he canceled the class. He said he said basically because if you're an auditor you don't have any skin in the game. You're not going to do the reading and you're not going to have anything interesting to contribute. It's not going to work. And the word for auditor is the word for hearer here, someone who's just there to listen but not really do the stuff, not have any skin in the game. Jesus says, don't just audit the class of life. Be a poet of the logos. Christians are supposed to be that life-giving connection between the world that should be and the world that is. We help bridge that connection. See, if James were here, what he would say is, Christians, don't play around with the gospel. It's an earth-shattering, life-altering encounter with reality, and we play around with it. Getting indignant at drivers on the turnpike, all the while never confronting the sin and death consuming our neighbors with the poetry of our lives in Jesus because we live as auditors instead of poets. So to wrap this all up, James brings it all together. Let's look at verse 25 together. It says, The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer, auditor who forgets, but a doer, poet who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." In fact, I want, I want you to see this in a different version. Here's my unauthorized translation of, of this. It says this it says the person who sees themselves in Jesus is set free to be who they were meant to be. Not forgetful auditors, but faithful poets, happy in their poetry. See, we look into the completed law. For Jewish Christian ears, that's a euphemism for Jesus. The Jesus who sets us free in the gospel to be who we were meant to be. We're not forgetful auditors with no skin in the game, but we're functioning poets. And he says we will be blessed or happy in our poetry. That's way more profound than that last word there, doing. It's poetry, it's a noun, it's a specific term in Hellenistic culture for bringing something into existence that did not exist before. That's what poets do, and so they called it poetry. See, that newness that God birthed into us way back in verse 18 comes to fruition here in verse 25 with us being agents of that newness. Poets of the Logos, happy to be part of God making the world new through the gospel. James calls that poetry. Now, Christian or not at at this point, we don't often see the gospel as this robust and profound, do we? We have a very orthodox, but very small gospel that's about saving souls, not restoring the Eden that was lost. Be enthralled again at, at the beauty of Jesus, the logos of God's truth and let his beauty free you from being a forgetful auditor in life and take up the mantle of being a poet of Jesus, a poet of the new world that one day, someday will be. See, James challenges us here as Christians. If you allow me to say it this way, he says, Christians are the cologne of God to a world that stinks. Go make something smell better in Jesus. (laughs) And non-Christians, man, regardless of your religious convictions, do you want to make a difference in the world? Do you want to play a role in making your part of the world better? James here shows us that that desire in your heart is right in line with God's desires for the world as well those he has set free in Jesus. He empowers and he sends out to change the world with the gospel, to be poets of the Logos. If you wanna see things get better, you should want the gospel to be true because it gives you the impetus and the resources to make it happen for all of us. And God calls his people to be poets, those who help connect people with the world that one day, someday will be. We're empowered in that mission because that was the mission of Jesus. He left the glories of that world that one day, someday will be to inhabit this world. So he could live the life that we were supposed to live before a holy God. And then he could die the death that we absolutely deserve to die before a just God. And then in his resurrection, he himself became the ultimate poet connecting those two worlds together. And united to him by faith in the gospel, we are two. We're the connections between the world that is and the world that will be because we're united to Jesus who is the ultimate connection. That'll empower you to change yourself. That will empower you to change the world without being quick tempered and angry but by taking his love to others, being poets in your very neighborhood. And if you want that, place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord and do it now, don't wait. Let's pray together. Gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace you've given us in your son Jesus. Lord, we thank you for non-rational reminders like this. Lord, this whole idea of being a poet of the Logos is deep and intense and we don't quite understand it even now. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to step forward into that unknown and that mystery and that ambiguity and see the beauty you have for us. We pray, Lord, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up and shown to be the glorious, beautiful, crucified Savior, that you would be true to your promise to draw all people to him. Would you do that now, Lord, so that it is true that your kingdom will come and your will will be done right now as it is in heaven. We pray all this, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.